0: Hi, Good morning. How you doing? Yeah, you all right? You awake? We good to go? I want to thank our friends at Village Church for that video. They did an I am series a while back, and uh, we were kind of hunting for some good ways to kind of kick off each week. And Hilkey found that one, and they did a great job. And they are very gracious to let us steal it. And uh, that's obviously our design. Chris did a great job putting that together. in each of the weeks one of those is going to be highlighted. Obviously, you're looking at that, and you're seeing the bread of life. You're smelling that. We are baking bread in the kitchen. I know, just to get you hungry. I didn't say we'd ever give you any. I just said we're baking it, okay? Bill and I were talking. We're like, you know what? Let's just kind of do like full court press on the whole bread of life thing. You won't be able to miss it. You'll walk out of here going, man, sure smells good and we're doing communion today which is not meant to be a meal so don't get too excited about that and uh and then the best part is you'll go to Panera after lunch we have a kind of a kickback program with them today no just kidding we don't have that so um but anyways we just are glad you're here we're moving forward in our series called I am ha, you couldn't have missed the I am on the lawn right how great is that Steve Springstead and his team put that together for us hey, can we give them a hand what a great job and uh, love that we're, we're doing this series with intent we are focusing our aim at Easter at Easter at the resurrection it changed everything and so we want to make much of that and we're looking at these I am statements that Jesus made found in the Gospel of John because here's our whole goal we're wanting to lean in and we're wanting to hear who Jesus says he is that's the best way to get to know someone who do they say they are and so we're going to look right from his mouth what were the things he said were true about himself. And I'm really excited to dive into this first one with you today. You have uh, message notes inside your worship folder if you grab those out. And then if your Bible, if you'd open it to John chapter 6. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It's the last of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we'll be in John 6 today. We're going to take on something quite... Um, I don't know if the right word is probably, you know, there's always a thin line between foolish and brilliant. I don't know which side we're on today, but we're trying to take on literally the whole chapter of John 6 because it sets up within 6 is this statement, I am the bread of life, but you've got to lay down the foundation to get there. So what we're going to do today, you're going to join me. We're going to get into the story. We're going to find some things. We're going to move pretty quickly rather than just kind of reading verse by verse. There's just a lot of territory to cover, and we're going to go for it. Last week we began this series, if you missed it with us, we looked at John 8 when Jesus said, I am, I am. And we looked back to Exodus chapter 3 to find the history. What does that even statement mean? And we found that God said from a, a bush that was a fire but not consumed, I am is sending you to get my people. And so when Jesus invoked, that name he did two things that were incredibly important number one remember the people around him when he said i am they picked up stones to kill him because that was blasphemous he was claiming to be god don't miss it they understood that that's why the reaction that they had and so when jesus claims to be god two important things happen number one he moves out of the category of good moral teacher because good moral teachers don't claim to be god they don't they're, they're no longer that they either are or they're liars or lunatics but they don't get to be both jesus claimed to be god recognizing, demonstrating to others and proclaiming i am indeed lord but the other thing that does is it lays the foundation because jesus is the great i am all of the other i am's make sense all of the other i am's can actually happen versus them just being kind of like flowery statements he likes to make because he's God he can be as we'll see today the bread of life as we dive in today here's kind of the big picture idea it kind of resonates with this question maybe you've had before think of a time do that real quick just think with yourself think of a time when you had to make the choice between giving someone what they wanted versus what they needed think about that's called parenting by the way you didn't know that So think of a time when you had to give someone what they needed instead of what they wanted. They wanted one thing, but you knew it wasn't good for them to give them what they needed. To the parent example, it could have been your kids wanting cake and ice cream for breakfast. Who doesn't want that, right? But you knew what they needed was a good bowl of oatmeal. And by the way, at least with brown sugar, it makes it easy to go down, right? So that's okay. A friend of yours might've wanted their keys, but because they were inebriated, you gave them what they needed you gave them a ride home someone might want you to tell them that they're exceptional in something but what they need to hear is the truth and love and just a reality check on their skill level these are things that you come into conflict with and the problem is is that most of us are people pleasers by nature we are people who don't like conflict by nature we are people who because we want to be on good terms with people we're inclined to tell them what they want to hear We're inclined to tell them what they want us to do for them Now there's a few of you in a room this size Who aren't that way at all And so when I just said that you can't even relate huh? I don't ever do stuff like that And that's awesome uh, in, in, On a case like this For the rest of us we're like Ah this is a challenge Because I'm, I'm compelled to want to try to make things good I'm compelled to do what people want me to do for them And the problem is people often want things that aren't good for them and they don't care about what they really need. This is the tension. This is really the issue that we walk into today when we see Jesus telling the crowds, telling his disciples that he came as the bread of life. And Jesus fully embodies, considering always most important, what people needed over what they wanted. Consistently always showed that response. And so we'll dive in today and we'll see this. Today we'll see the crowds, after having their stomachs filled with the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 the day before, Jesus is going to share with them the kind of food that they ought to be pursuing, the kind of food they really need, is not the kind they had the day before. Not like the manna that their ancestors had had generations before. Instead, it's the kind that will sustain them for eternal life. That's what they need. The statement i want you to keep in mind today kind of on the forefront of your mind as we look into this look on the screen jesus offers what you need knowing it's more important than what you want so let's dive into the narrative in the story today of john chapter six number one in your notes you are drawn to jesus by his supernatural power you're drawn to jesus by his supernatural power here's what i mean by that when you see jesus as god as who he is the supernatural things that he did recorded in scripture for us and even the things you sense in your life that he is on the move doing draws you to himself and rightly so it also drew the crowds we in John chapter 6 today. let me set the context first of all for this statement I am the bread of life it happens at the Sea of Galilee and this is the northern part up above Jerusalem up in the area called Galilee as a region the crowds are gathering and it says in John six, they're gathering because they've seen his supernatural power in healing sick people. Jesus has been doing things other people can't do, other things that like people you and I can't do. He's literally causing those who can't walk to rise. He's causing those who can't see to see. These are things people can't do. Jesus is doing it, it causes a crowd. He's on a mountainside talking to his disciples. And here's the key, when does all this happen? John chapter six, verse four. The Jewish Passover festival was near. The Jewish Passover festival was near. I got to tell you, I have read right over that statement so many times when I've read John 6. But this week, something caught my attention. What is the Jewish Passover festival about? Let's back up to that. Passover, remember last week, we're talking about Moses and a burning bush. The burning bush, God in the bush tells him, go back to my people. They're enslaved in Egypt. Liberate them, free them, and bring them to the promised land. Well, part of the liberation was a sequence of plagues. Pharaoh would not let Moses' people go. So as a result, God keeps doing things to open up his hand. The 10th and final plague was that of the angel of death. And this angel was going to come by throughout the land of Egypt. And for all those who did not have the blood of of a lamb that was kind of painted over the doorframe of their house, for all those that didn't have that over their frame, the firstborn would die. And if Pharaoh's home, not hearing that, not worrying about who this Yahweh was, did not put that over his frame of his home, his firstborn dies, and that's finally the final piece where his hands open up and he says, get out of my presence, take your people and go. So the people leave. And by the way, if you're here today and this whole Bible thing is new for you, I know that what I just said sounds like a fairy tale. That sounds so weird track with this though what God was after he was doing supernatural things to get Pharaoh's attention and just like the crowds today he saw them with his own two eyes but he would not believe that God is who he says he is and so as a result of putting the sacrificial blood over the doorway the people that night literally got up and left and the Passover represents the idea that the angel passed over the homes with the blood and no one was taken that's the sequence. That's the timing. Now, literally, hundreds of years later, Jesus in the first century is about to celebrate with his disciples, with the, all the people of Israel. This is what we call a pilgrimage feast. They were all going to come to Jerusalem. In that time frame, John is quick to say that's the, the, the setting, the time context for when this story happens. So, here's what you're going to see you're going to see a host of allusions to the Passover, you're going to see a host of allusions to Moses. You're gonna see a host of allusions to the bread that God gave the people in the desert called manna. And that kind of sets the whole frame for everything we're looking at today is the actual time when all this happened in Jesus's um, ministry. Here's how John six begins. Jesus supernaturally feeds 5,000 plus people from a boy's lunch. Now, if I can say those words and you can hear them and not react, you've heard these narratives way too many times. Because I just said something no one can do, okay? And he didn't even have a supersized lunch, right? This kid, right? He just had this basic lunch of bread and fish and he brings it and almost you think either as a joke or sarcasm, Philip says, well, there's or there's, here's a lunch. You know, we got literally thousands of people. It says 5,000 men, commentators say maybe 15 to 20,000 total people are here. And Jesus is saying, How are we going to feed all these people? His disciples are like totally flipping out. There's no way. We can't even, you know, we don't have enough money for that kind of food. We don't know where we'd find that kind of food. And then a lunch shows up in front of Jesus. And he begins to multiply this lunch. I'm telling you, everybody there that day knew that something was happening that they couldn't explain. Nobody feeds thousands of people from a lunch. And the reality is that sometimes we can read biblical narratives, those of us who've grown up in a church environment like myself, and read right over the top of the supernatural. Nobody but God does the things that Jesus did. Don't forget that today, because that's going to be huge as we walk through. And everyone who was present knew that God was present, knew that something is going on that we have no other explanation for. That's the context of the story. They receive a supernatural lunch. And what's interesting is, we said a minute ago, just like the masses that were hungry in the desert, there was no way to feed people on a march from Egypt to the promised land. So God provided a kind of bread. He called it manna in the desert. Nothing they worked for, nothing they baked. They literally found it every day. In the same way that, as it were, Moses provided bread for the masses, Jesus provides bread for the masses. And you're gonna see in just a second, they totally make that connection. As a result of this miracle, the people come to a conclusion in your notes or in your Bible on the screen. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is coming to the world. They make a connection. And as you and I, if you're familiar with your Bible, you would have thought they said, surely this is Messiah. The Jewish people are looking for Messiah. They've been promised this unique anointed one, and the Messiah concept had within it king. The anointed one, David was anointed king. One would come like David, but they don't make that comparison. They say he's like the prophet. But what they're alluding to, Deuteronomy chapter 18, you can see it on the screen. It says, this is Moses writing. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. It goes on a few verses later now. It's God talking. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like you Moses, from among their fellow Israelites. And I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So here they've been fed lunch and that's the connection they make. This is a sign this is the fulfillment of what god told us through moses the prophet has arrived now here's the thing i want you to catch they were right they were right and then some jesus came to be much more than someone who provided lunch but jesus did provide them lunch jesus did fulfill this role of being the one that god would send next And then the next steps we're going to see, though, change our idea of what the people understood. Here's Jesus' response to what this acclaim is. It's a little different than you would have thought. John 6, 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew to a mountain by himself. Not interesting. There couldn't be more popularity. If you were coming to mount an insurrection, if you were coming... To be the popular vote of the people jesus has it but in the midst of that moment sensing what's going on he says that's not what i came to do was to be made king i came to bring life and so jesus withdraws now to create space not only between him and the crowds but between his 12 disciples and the crowds he puts them on a boat they're there at the sea of galilee puts them on a boat and sends them across the way he says go to the other side of the lake i'll meet you there okay well a couple things of his disciples, four at least of them were lifelong professional fishermen. So putting a boat on the Sea of Galilee was their old stomping grounds. They knew the lake. They knew how to row a boat. It was no big deal. I think the question they might have asked in their mind is, Jesus, if you're sending us ahead of you, is it going to be like days before you catch up? Are you just going to walk around the lake to finally get there? Because it's a lot faster to go the direction we're going. Why aren't you in the boat? But they don't we don't have any record of them asking those questions. I think they were thinking them. They get in the boat and they go. As the boat is going across the Sea of Galilee, rough waters arise. And as they arise, Jesus comes walking on the water and gets in the boat. Now, if I just read that statement and you didn't react, you've heard this narrative way too many times. Okay, are you getting the drift? Nobody walks on water unless you're God. Jesus set them out, I'll meet you. He absolutely did, not the way they thought. He comes walking on the water to the boat. And the interesting thing is the text tells us in John 6, he not only walks to them, but he actually gets into the boat. And watch this, This sometimes we kind of read right over this as well. It says, once Jesus entered the boat, immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. That doesn't happen either, right? Just because someone joined you in the boat, boom, you're all of a there. That would normally take time to finish the, the course. So here's my point. In John 6, three supernatural things happen in just the first, where do we read to? About the first 15, 16 verses. That's pretty significant. And it's something to not read over and, and, not, and dismiss because here's the interesting thing. Who was the audience for all three of these supernatural demonstrations of power? Not the crowds, but the disciples. And what you're gonna see is Jesus is incredibly strategic. He shows the disciple or the, the crowd something for a good reason, but he's very intentional on in what he's showing his disciples. And what he's after is he's wanting them to see you can trust what I say, watch, because you see what I do. You can trust what I'm going to say because you see what I'm going to do or what I've done. Those two things are building faith. Remember John, right? John, what he's after in this whole sequence of things. John is trying to make a case for the fact that Jesus is credible. Jesus is someone who came to do what he came to do and you can believe that for yourself. We'll see that in a little bit in a moment. But just catch the idea, Jesus is doing things to develop and encourage the confidence of his 12 disciples in who he is when we see this reality we're gonna find this incredibly important truth later on that supernatural occurrences are for the purpose of growing our faith not just for them happening number two in your notes today you realize that Jesus prioritizes what you need over what you want so you might be drawn to Jesus first and foremost by something supernatural about what he does or some experience that you have. But then you quickly recognize Jesus is after something. He's not after fulfilling what you want. He's after preparing and providing what you need. And you begin to understand that. The people, they finally locate Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when they do, he identifies their motivation for looking for him. John chapter 6, verse 26 says this. Jesus answered very truly I tell you you are looking for me watch not because you saw the signs I performed not because you have a growing faith and interest in me but instead but because you ate the loaves and had your fill you're not coming to me looking for life you're coming to me looking for lunch do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give you watch for on him God the Father has placed this seal of approval. Jesus is making a distinction with the crowds, and what he's saying is this. You have experienced something with your own own self. Your own hands took the lunch, and you ate it. You, You don't have to hear someone tell you that happened. You were there. But in the midst of a supernatural experience, what you should have done with that is to say, this guy is completely like anyone else this person is something special I want to know what that is instead what they come for is lunch number two and Jesus is drawing this out Jesus is putting a mirror up in front of them and saying I know why you've come back today it's not for faith it's for lunch and here's what Jesus is after. Jesus, all throughout the book, the gospel of John, John intentionally uses a word that the other three gospels don't. He uses the word sign. and what, It's kind of like the idea of literally what a sign is. A sign points to something. And so what John is saying is Jesus uses supernatural experiences, supernatural displays of power to point people to an understanding that he is God. But watch this, you can miss it you can experience something personally but still miss the purpose of it. And that's what Jesus is drawing out. Probably to me some of the best words from the Gospel of John, John 20, 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, watch this, but these, these signs, these ones I have included are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. By the way, watch, that you, You, us, that we may believe. John wrote the gospel of John for us. That we might believe we weren't there firsthand, but these are written that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah who we just sang of today. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. The experience, the draw of a supernatural sign like lunch is not important like the faith or the trust in the performer of the sign. That was Jesus back to our narrative John chapter 6 looking at verse 32 Jesus is having this conversation it says this Jesus said to them very truly I tell you it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven Moses never provided anything he was the leader watch but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world look at their response sir They said, Always give us this bread. Have us come to lunch every day. This would be awesome. We will come and we will sup with you. Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. That looks a lot different from lunch. And now all of a sudden the people are in a quandary. What do you do with this? This is what the stuff of the rest of the chapter of John 6 is about. It's this conflict. Conflict between what people want versus what Jesus knows they need Jesus came to address their greatest need He came to offer himself as the atoning sacrifice for their sin So that, like we just read in John twenty thirty one, So that they might have eternal life And guess what, they would just like lunch They're not interested in life, they want lunch Now, for us, it's real easy. I've found in the Bible, it's really easy to read the scriptures and really um, have a critical attitude and just be really negative and down on the various characters that come in contact with God, that come in contact with Jesus, and then realize they didn't have faith and blow them off. Just kind of like, these guys are morons. But I want to do this. Rather than look through the window today, look in the mirror a little bit. When we are critical of this crowd's fickle faith, all they wanted was what they wanted, not what they needed. Let's look in the mirror real a second, though, and ask ourselves that question. How many times do we come to Jesus based on what we want versus what we need? You see, what we want is financial independence. We don't want to have to worry about where funds are coming from. We don't have to worry. We don't, have, we don't want to have to live check to check. Jesus says, What I'm after more than what you want is what you need. What you need is dependence on me. Rather than creating bubbling an environment for yourself where you don't think you need anything, I know you need me. What you want is for your kids to not go through challenges and trials because you hate to watch them in pain. Watch this. That's what you want. What they need is to learn to look to Jesus For themselves rather than riding the coattails of your faith they need to know they can trust in Jesus as their Messiah and often it's only through challenges that we ever look up not what you want but what they need what you want is a life that doesn't have challenges and trials and we already saw that right in James chapter 1 We saw that we need them, though. We need them because they develop within us a perseverance we would never have. And that perseverance must complete, must finish its work so that we might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We don't want challenges and trials, but we need them. So before we're too critical with a group of people who only wanted from Jesus what they wanted, let's be sure that we're at least honest with ourselves and realize, no, I can go there too. This brings us to our third and final point today concerning what you do when you're living in this tension between what you want and what you need. Number three, you have a decision to make when Jesus says hard things. You have a decision to make when Jesus says hard things because he does. Here's how it went for the crowd who could not consider Jesus as anything but the another prophet, right? That's kind of what they said. The prophet who's entered the world, but they didn't really think or mean that. They just thought he was another prophet who was gonna do things like Moses. They didn't realize that he came to be the prophet that was uniquely sent by God who was gonna change everything. John chapter six, verse 41. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? And this is gonna begin now, this conflict of sequences. By the way, you and I read over that statement earlier. Jesus said, you know, I am this bread. I've come down from heaven. We just read right over that. For people who were listening to Jesus, that was crazy talk. What do you mean you've come down from heaven? We know your dad. You know, we know where you live. You're that guy. And you might do some really interesting things, and you might say some real provocative things, but we know where you come from. Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't know where I come from. And that creates more and more of the conflict. And then the passage that I believe captures this chapter, what this chapter is all about, and what this I am really is centering on, is in verse 48. Jesus speaking, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus has been teaching the crowds through this entire sequence that he came to do something categorically different, categorically better, categorically more needful that Moses could have ever offered. Moses could not bring them bread that would be for eternal life. All he could feed the people in the desert and through God was lunch. And they ultimately died. Manna left them still in the same predicament. It's what they wanted, but it wasn't what they needed. What I want you to notice is how many times you read the word life or live or living, all from that same basic Greek word, zoe, and it's contrasted with death. You read that word four times in those four verses. Jesus is pounding this idea, I came to bring you life that will not end. Life everlasting And yet he ends this statement with something very hard to understand. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. Huh? Is Christianity cannibalism? Like, what on earth is that about? And I hope that when you read those statements with me, you stopped a little bit and thought, that's really odd. Because guess what? It is. It's an odd statement to tell people that I am the bread of life and my flesh is the bread. Because you're going, I don't know what to do with that. Here's the interesting thing. Have you ever had someone tell you something that was very odd that you didn't know what to do with it? If you haven't, you're only six. (laughs) People say lots of odd things, right? That's not the issue. So here's what I want you to think about. Walk this out because I think you're going to see the point in just a second. What do you do with someone who says something that is hard to understand? This someone kind of fits one of three categories. First off, if the person is someone that you just don't really have any connection to and really have no one or the other feelings for, either good or bad, and they say something really odd, guess what you do? Hmm, that's interesting. you're not going to do anything with that. That was really loony. And you don't really care. And now it plants a seed in your head for the next time you interact with them, but you're basically like, whatever, that's really weird. I've had enough of weird conversations to know I'm just going to let that be. Then someone says something really strange, maybe the same exact statement, and this is someone that you really have a problem with. You are looking for an excuse, and when they say, fill in the blank, you go, I knew it. They were nuts And now you create an excuse For why you don't have to do life with them Or Someone that you love And someone that you care about Someone that you're supposed to have a connection with Says something very strange And you know in your spirit You can't just let it go You know in your spirit you can't dismiss it. You know in your spirit you can't use it as an excuse to create distance because that relationship is meant to be tight. So what do you do? You pursue them. Someone says something very strange that you have a close connection to, you care for, you pursue them to understand what they meant. Jesus says something very strange And the crowds who were there, who were just kind of watching, just kind of checking it out, the minute he says that statement, yeah, that's odd. And they just walk away. For the people who had come, who actually now in the conversation, yeah, they had lunch too, but they're growing an antagonism. Who is this guy who tells us he's from heaven? You already have a beef with Jesus. Now he says this, I knew it, he's nuts. And then you walk off. But for people who were drawn to Jesus, watch this, for people who had seen him three times in less than 24 hours do supernatural things they could not otherwise explain. They chose that third option and they pursued that. You see, it's the difference of what you do. If you have that annoying co-worker at work who says, last night I was abducted by an alien. And then you have your spouse Who says, last night I was abducted by an alien. One of those you should dismiss. And by the way, not your spouse, just in case you weren't. (laughs) You're like, well, Todd, you needed to fill in that blank for me. I didn't know what to do with that. One you should dismiss, the other you should pursue. And I believe that's the genius of what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't talking crazy talk just to talk crazy talk. Like, Meaning, he's not simply trying to say just kind of nutso things. He's going to go on to explain. He's going to say in John 6 that his flesh is the flesh is going to be offered as the sacrifice to save the world. This is well before the cross. The people have no idea what he's talking about, but he's telling them in advance, this is what's going to happen. In the moment hard for them to understand and the moment seems crazy but for those who already had a connection and had had a faith base and a foundation you're gonna see in just a minute they pursued him rather than walking away now one of the huge factors we haven't talked about yet actually comes up two or three times in John 6 is this idea that along with faith is the need for God the Father to do a work in lives. This is what he says. John chapter 6, 65. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. If you remember, we were in the book of Ephesians, right? Chapter 2, the first three verses, that basically says that we're all spiritually dead on arrival. Dead people don't respond to stimuli. Spiritually dead people cannot respond to spiritual stimuli so what does god need to do in every case in the the new testament and in our lives he begins to wake us up he begins to quicken us he begins to bring to life now the ability for us to respond to jesus's invitation and so jesus is quick to note that though there is a personal responsibility for each one to respond to jesus's invitation to follow There's a critical element necessary concerning the Father's work in people's lives. That is so true. And so for those who had not responded in trust and who had not been enabled by the Father, some of the most, I just think, discouraging words in all the Bible, interestingly enough, its reference is John 6, 66. And it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Upon hearing these words, upon having this conversation, upon having their stomachs filled one day, and hearing that Jesus didn't come for lunch the next day, they turned around and left. By the way, what we find is a very important piece, it's in your notes, very important to help us with the definition of a disciple. This verse is profoundly powerful in that it helps us define what a disciple is, one who follows a leader. One who follows a leader. So what we find is the disciples, not the 12, but the masses, are no longer to be called disciples because they're not following. That is by nature the definition. One who follows a leader. So when you turn your back and you walk away, you're no longer a disciple of Jesus. Now in your own personal lives, that can get interesting because many of us have had seasons where we've said, I've grown up believing this Jesus stuff and I'm out of season now, I'm done with it, I walk away. By just literal definition, you're not a disciple. You're not following him. None of us follow him perfectly, but the reality is, is that's the nature of the word, to follow Jesus. Now, for many of us, God did something in that experience at some point that drew us back to him. And now as you're walking, following him today, that's a true word. But I think it's important to clarify, discipleship means almost everything to everybody. But the Bible defines it. The Bible tells us what it is. And at the most essential core, it's one who follows, in this case, Jesus. Now now that the audience has been whittled down literally to the 12, Jesus asked that group if they're wanting to leave him too. And I love these words from Peter, John 6, 68. Simon Peter had answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I can't think of a better response that Peter, speaking for the 12, could have had. Don't you love it how it begins? Where else would we go? It would be foolish for us to pursue anyone or anything else. Why? Because we're all in. We have cast our lot with you and not because we're so faithful, like full of faith, but because we have found you credible. We have found you trustworthy. You have the words of eternal life. And so guess what? Those three signs that the disciples had seen at the beginning of John 6, they did within the disciples exactly what they were meant to, so that you might believe that Jesus is Messiah, Son of God. He says we do believe that. In your notes, what was the difference between the crowd of disciples and the 12 disciples? Trust. Trust. They had decided that they were all in and trusted his words and ways. And by the way, we'd be quick to say the father had also enabled them to do so just like Jesus had taught earlier. Here's what I want you to remember this week as we walk forward and we think about what does it mean now in my life for Jesus to be the bread of life? And I wanna just kind of shine the light on this principle we've been looking at all through this passage. Jesus came to bring you what you need and it is infinitely more valuable than what you want. Would this week be an opportunity, would this time together today be a catalyst to get us thinking and maybe praying, God, I often pray for what I want. Would I begin to be praying for what I need? And the people that are in my relational world, the people I'm doing life with, many of them, if they have any idea of God at all, They're only looking to him for what they want. Help me to begin praying for what they need. Remember I've told you, I pray a very dangerous prayer for people in my relational world who've not yet responded to Jesus. I pray Jesus bring him, bring her to the end of themselves. And it's dangerous because when God says yes to that, he will, and they will go through a trough, they will go through a valley, watch this, but always for the good of what they need. Much more important than what they want. Let this be our front and center idea throughout the week this week. Jesus offers you what you need knowing that it's more important than what you want. Let me pray. Father, I want to say thank you for your word. I want to say thank you for this truth that we find here in John chapter 6 that you Clarify you hone in Knowing what we need Is more significant more Important than what we would think we want And so father in the Times when we're frustrated That you don't give us what we want Remind us that You have our best in mind remind us That you are a good good father Remind us that We can trust We can trust your Hand god even when We can't trace what you're doing And so we thank you for that. Help us be thoughtful about not only our lives, but the people in our worlds this week. If you're here today and you would say, you know what, I I really have not put my trust in Jesus and what he's done. I would have to honestly say, looking at the definition, I am not a disciple, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to be. I have great news for you. You can. You can become that disciple of Jesus right here, right now. It doesn't require a set of classes. It doesn't require going through some list of things you have to know first. It's really simple. I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. A is to admit. Admit that you're a sinner who has lived life on your terms, not on God's. And as a result, there's a break in the relationship. When you admit you're a sinner, you simply admit you're a part of the human race. The allusion we made today to Ephesians 2, we're all spiritually dead on arrival. B is believe. Believe this Jesus that we've been talking about today. He did come to offer himself as the bread of life. Life eternal. Believe that he lived a sinless life. Believe that he died a sacrificial death. Believe that he was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe he's the only savior available. And see his choose. Choose to do what we just said in this passage. Choose to follow in Jesus' steps. Choose to put one foot in front of the next and say, Jesus, I want to live according to your pattern. That's the decision that stands before you today. My encouragement, don't leave here before you do. My encouragement, make that decision even now in your chair. And as we enter into this time of communion, you will be taking communion for the very first time the way it was always meant to, rallying around our unity we have in Jesus. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your goodness to us.